Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we will cover Part 4 of the life of George Armstrong Custer, which will be the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the battle that took uh, Custer's life, and we will also cover Libby Custer's life afterwards. So by setting the stage, there were around 2,000, maybe as many as 3,000 Indian warriors at the Little Bighorn. The top brass of the U.S. Army and the whole government had no idea the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne could ever assemble such a large gathering of warriors. In fact, they didn't know so many warriors existed in the country. When Custer and the 7th U.S. Cavalry left Fort Abraham Lincoln in Dakota Territory for the showdown with the Plains Indians 400 miles away, this was just considered a reconnaissance in force, and they did not expect a big fight. Now, by way of review... In 1874, an Army expedition led by Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer found gold in the Black Hills in present-day South Dakota. At that time, the U.S. government recognized the hills as property of the Sioux Nation under a treaty of the two parties had signed six years before. The Grant administration tried to buy the hills, but the Sioux, considering them sacred ground, refused to sell. In 1876, federal troops were dispatched to force the Sioux onto reservations and pacify the Great Plains. That spring, under orders of General Phil Sheridan, three army columns converged on Lakota country in an attempt to corral the rebellious bands of of Indians. Moving east from Fort Ellis, near Bozeman, Montana, was a column led by Colonel John Gibbon. From the south, from Fort Fetterman in Wyoming Territory, came a column under the command of George Crook. On May 17th, General Alfred H. Terry headed west from Fort Abraham Lincoln in charge of the Dakota Column, the bulk of which consisted of Custer's 7th Cavalry. On June 22nd, Terry sent Custer and the 7th Cavalry in pursuit of Sitting Bull's Trail, which led into the Little Bighorn Valley. Terry's plan was for Custer to attack the Lakota and Cheyenne from the south, forcing them toward a smaller force that he intended to deploy further upstream on the Little Bighorn River. From the biography of Grant by Ron Chernow, The Sioux had acquired the reputation, Sherman said, of being, quote, the most brave warriors and warlike savages on the continent, unquote. By late May, Phil Sheridan confessed that his two department commanders, Generals Crook and Terry, hadn't the foggiest idea where Sitting Bull and his Sioux warriors had fled. Sheridan took refuge in the illusion that a large body of hostile Indians couldn't remain cohesive for long enough Long and even imagined that the approach of three columns would herd them back onto the reservation. Shattering such naive expectations on June 17th, Crazy Horse led a band of warriors against the thousand-man column under General Crook, dealing them a bloody setback and driving them rearward to their base camp. As uh, Custer drifted westward toward his doom, he knew nothing of this stunning defeat. The stunning defeat Chernow referenced was the Battle of Rosebud. The Army's coordination and planning began to go awry on June 17 
when Crook's column retreated after the Battle of Rosebud, just 30 miles southeast of the eventual Little Bighorn battlefield. Surprised and, according to some accounts, astonished by the unusually large numbers of Native Americans, Crook held the field at the end of the battle, but felt compelled by his losses to pull back, regroup, and wait for reinforcements. Unaware of Crook's battle, Gibbon and Terry proceeded, joining forces in early June near the mouth of the Rosebud Creek. They reviewed Terry's plan, calling for Custer's regiment to proceed south along the Rosebud, while Terry and Gibbon's united forces would move in the westerly direction toward the Bighorn and Little Bighorn Rivers, as this was the likely location of native encampments. All Army elements had been instructed to converge there around June 26 or 27 in an attempt to engulf the Native Americans. On June 22, Terry ordered the 7th Cavalry, composed of 31 officers and 566 enlisted men under Custer, to begin a reconnaissance in force and pursuit along the Brosebud, with the prerogative to, quote, depart, unquote, from orders if Custer saw, quote, sufficient reason, unquote. Custer had been offered the use of Gatling guns, but declined, believing this would slow his rate of march. Again from Chernow. Quote, you must rely on the ability of your own column for your best success, unquote. Sheridan wired Terry on May 16. Quote, believe it, I believe it to be fully equal to all the Sioux which can be brought against it, and only hope that they will hold fast to meet it. You know the impossibility of any large number of Indians keeping together as a hostile body for even one week, unquote. How wrong could he have been? By the morning of June 25th, Custer's scouts had discovered the location of Sitting Bull's village. Custer intended to move the 7th Cavalry to a position that would allow the force to attack the village at dawn the next day. However, when some stray Indian warriors sighted a few 7th Cavalrymen, Custer assumed that they would rush to warn the village, causing the residents to scatter. Chester, uh, Custer chose to attack immediately. At noon on June 25th, in an attempt to prevent Sitting Bull's followers from escaping, he split his regiment into three battalions. He sent three companies under the command of Major Marcus A. Reno to charge straight into the village, dispatched three companies under Captain Frederick W. Benteen to the south to cut off the flight of any Indians in that direction, and took five companies under his own personal command to attack the village from the north. As the Battle of the Little Bighorn unfolded, Custer and the 7th Cavalry fell victim to a series of surprises, not the least of which was the number of warriors that they had encountered. Army intelligence had estimated Sitting Bull's force at 800 fighting men at the most. In fact, some 2,000 Lakota and Cheyenne warriors took, took part in this battle at least. Many of them were armed with superior repeating rifles, and all of them were quick to defend their families. Native American accounts of the battle are especially laudatory of the courageous actions of Crazy Horse, leader of the Oglala Band of Lakota. Other Indian leaders displayed equal courage and tactical skill. 
Cut off by the Indians, all 210 of the soldiers who had followed Custer toward the northern reaches of the village were killed in a desperate fight that may have lasted nearly two hours and culminated in the defense of high ground beyond the village that became known as, quote, Custer's last stand, unquote. From Joseph Whelan. Custer and five companies of the 7th Cavalry had ridden off to attack the north side of, of the Sioux's sprawling village alongside the Little Bighorn River, while Major Marcus Reno and three companies struck the south end. For days before the battle, General Terry had told Custer that he planned to uh, the attack the village from the north while Custer on the south side blocked the Indians' escape. But Terry also said that if Custer reached the village before Terry, he should not wait if he believed he could win. Custer had believed, and he had actually acted accordingly. Unfortunately for him, a bend in the river and the heavily wooded riverbanks concealed the village's terrible secret. Its six tribal circles stretching for miles, which 10,000 to ten to 15,000 Indians inhabited. The warrior's initial preoccupation with annihilating Custer's command gave Reno time to find a good defensive position and join forces with Captain Benteen, whose uh, four companies had been held in reserve to prevent the Indians from escaping to the south. Together, they survived the two-day siege by the warriors who had just wiped out Custer. Atop a hill on the other end of the valley, Reno's battalion, which had been reinforced by Benteen's contingent, held out against a prolonged assault until the next evening when the Indians broke off their attack and departed. Only a single badly wounded horse remained from Custer's annihilated battalion. The victorious Lakota and Cheyenne had captured 80 to 90 of the battalion's mounts. That horse, Comanche, managed to survive, and for many years it would appear in the 7th Cavalry Parades, saddled but riderless. The precise details of Custer's fight and his movements before and during the battle are largely conjecture, since none of the men who went forward with Custer's battalion, the five companies under his immediate command, survived the battle. Later accounts from surviving Indians are useful, but are sometimes conflicting and unclear. The Battle of the Little Bighorn is one of the most studied actions in U.S. military history, and the immense literature on the subject is devoted primarily to answering questions about Custer's generalship during the fighting. Most of the literature focuses on finding someone in the U.S. Army to blame for the massacre, whether to blame Custer or his lieutenants, Reno or Benteen, or perhaps his superiors, Terry, Sheridan, Sherman, or even Grant. But historian Robert Utley argues that finding blame with the U.S. Army misses the big picture and overlooks the fact that on June 25, 1876, the Lakota and Cheyenne, including their leaders Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, were just better. They were better prepared. They had better warriors, more horses, better planning, better intelligence, better leadership, and better weapons. They were just better that day. The outcome of the battle though it proved to be the height of Indian power, so stunned and enraged white Americans that government troops flooded the area, forcing the Indians to surrender, and eventually all were moved to reservations. 
George Armstrong Custer is buried at West Point. There are hundreds of memorials of Custer worldwide, and many towns and streets are also named after him. Libby Custer lived on as a widow for 57 years, and similar to Eliza Hamilton, spent the rest of her life defending and rehabilitating the memory of her fallen husband. They had no children. Custer left Libby with large debts as a result of his poor investments, all of which she did settle over time. Gifted with unbounded energy, Lizzie Custer went on to write three memoirs, all of which were bestsellers. She became wealthy on the basis of her writing. Also, she made great investments and was a very popular attraction on the lecture circuit. She died in 1933 in New York, leaving a very large estate. Now tune in for my next podcast in which we will discuss Confederate General James Longstreet. Longstreet.